Welcome back to Chamber Talk, a podcast brought to you by Aberdeen and Grampian Chamber of Commerce. I'm your host, Finlay Jack, today joined by the Chamber's Chief Executive, Russell Borthwick. And we told you last time that we would be joined by the leader of Scottish Labour, Anna Sawar, but we've had to do some shuffling about, so perhaps appropriately, we are joined by the leader of Scotland's second biggest party, Douglas Ross. Gents, thank you both for joining me. Um, Douglas, it's, it's probably fair to say you're quite a busy man, um, an MSP and a linesman. You are, of course, an MP for the time being. Um, why are you giving up that role this year? So I was uh, uh, made Scottish Conservative leader in August 2020, which was just about eight months after I'd been re-elected MP for Murray uh, in the December 2019 general election. So I made a commitment to continue with the mandate I'd been given by the people of Murray uh, to be their MP until the next general election. Uh, that is coming at some point this year. Uh, one person certainly knows uh, when that is, uh, but the Prime Minister's obviously keeping his cards close to his chest uh, on that. So at some point when the general election's called, uh, I'll be stepping down from my role as MP for Murray. But I have to say it's been uh, one of the, the privileges of my lifetime to be uh, elected uh, as an MP, uh, but particularly for my home area. You know, I've been born, uh, brought up in, in Murray, lived there my entire life, uh, started uh, my working career on, on a dairy farm in Murray. Before that, went to local schools at Avis and Forest Academy, uh, and now have my own family there. So, uh, I, and we'll probably get into this, I always wanted to get into politics, but particularly, you know, representing my home area is very special for me. Uh, and I am so very fortunate to have the opportunity to do that because the Highlands and Islands region, which I currently represent, includes the vast majority of the, the Murray constituency. Just talking about this dual role um, that you've had for, I think, more than six years now, but certainly three to four years as the Scottish Conservative leader, your portfolio at both parliaments has changed a couple of times. Um, you know, Going forward, given the magnitude of, of these roles, you've got a lot of people to represent. Do you think that politicians should be doing both roles simultaneously? Uh, so obviously I'm the only one that currently does it. Uh, but when the Scottish Parliament was uh, re-established in 1999, actually there was a large number uh, of MPs who were then elected to Holyrood, SNP, Labour, and I think Liberal Democrat as well. Uh, so it wasn't unusual at that time for people to, to hold the dual mandates, uh, and indeed that's why we've got legislation uh, which allows that. Uh, yes, it does mean you're very busy. It's a lot of travelling, but actually there are many areas where it's useful to... Uh, be debating and hearing discussions in both parliaments. You know, this week uh, at Westminster, we were discussing the oil and gas licensing bill, which of course is reserved to Westminster. And I was able to speak on the green benches about it, but it often regularly comes up at Holyrood as well. And I think that shows there, there are opportunities to, to use your presence in both chambers uh, to raise issues that are important for my Murray constituents, which are often very similar to people right across the Highlands and Islands. Do you actually think then, just flipping it perhaps, more politicians should consider you know, th this dual role given the fact that parliaments cross over mm -hmm. in a number of issues like yeah. you just mentioned? Well, like I say, it, it has been done in the past. It's it's not easy. You know, sometimes you have to uh, decide to, to be in one parliament when there's something equally important uh, in another parliament. What has made it easier for me, uh, certainly with uh, Holyrood, is you can vote remotely. Uh, so we still have a very traditional system at Westminster, which I like because you're able to walk through a voting lobby with government ministers or the prime minister that you can catch their ear. They can't get away from you. So they've got to speak to you. Uh, 
uh, in the division lobby sometimes, but at Holyrood, I'm able to, to vote on my mobile phone, as all MSPs are, so it does allow that bit more flexibility. But at times, there will be conflicts as well where you miss something in one parliament that you'd like to be at uh, because you've got to be somewhere else. So uh, it's a balancing act. Uh, it's not easy, but there are also benefits to it as well. I think it's too easy for people to say you absolutely shouldn't do it. You know, it's it's bad to have uh, a representative that's in both parliaments. I think there are, are pros and cons, um, and I'll only be doing it for a few more months now. So I was just maybe picking up on that, Douglas. So having made the decision that the focus is going to be in Holyrood moving forward, what does that tell us about your own future personal ambitions in politics? What's next? What do you see going forward? Yeah, well, I thought it was really important when I became leader that I set out clearly. You know, I knew it was going to be the first question of all the journalists, so are you going to resign from Westminster or what's going to happen? So that's why I wanted to give that commitment very early on. And it's strange. It just shows that sometimes it's it's short in people's memory because I quite often get asked, well, what are you going to do at the next general election? And I thought, well, I did lay this out quite comprehensively now almost three and a half years ago. Uh, but in terms of, of the future, obviously, you know, as leader of the party, uh, I'll continue to do that uh, from Holyrood with the MSP group, but you're leader of uh, you know, the entire party, the membership, so it'll be important to uh, continue the work that we're doing with our councillors, with our uh, membership, uh, and with you know the MP group as well, and I, I hope we will have uh, as big, if not a bigger uh, MP group uh, going down to Westminster after the next general election, because we know, uh, you know we are here in the northeast in many parts of Scotland, uh, the battle at the next general election is going to be between the Scottish Conservatives uh, and the SNP and a lot of these seats, either the seats we hold, the SNP are in second place and they're the title challengers, or in seats here in uh, Aberdeen and Aberdeenshire it's the SNP that hold the seat and the Scottish Conservatives are in second place and are the only ones uh, that can beat the SNP at the next election. So there's a lot of focus on that uh, in the coming weeks and months. You were elected, obviously, about eight months later, as you've said, you became leader of the, the Scottish Conservative Party. Obviously, a busy time, COVID was going on and, and such. But was there any consideration there and then to give up your role as an MP? Because there was still a, a long time left for somebody to come in to Murray and, and to make the mark. It was four years. It wasn't yeah. the case of a few months. It, well, it, it was four years. But of course, we'd gone through a spell when we didn't know when we were going to have elections. We had uh, the 2017 election that people weren't really expecting. And then we had the 2019 election. So there was no guarantee that it was going to go within the entire term, although obviously by that stage the Conservatives had a, a significant majority um, uh, and a mandate uh, to, to govern uh, on their own um, as uh, you know, a single party at a UK level. But I, I just felt, um, you know, I'd spent a long time uh, seeking to be uh, the candidate and the MP for Murray. It's something, you know, I think hopefully it's come across already. I'm very passionate uh, about that part of Scotland. And I felt I was able to represent uh, Murray as a member of parliament. And I was then seeking election. Uh, you know, there was a period where I was leader, but not in the Scottish Parliament. So from August 2020 until the May election in 2021, uh, I was still only in the UK Parliament. So it's only been that period from 21 uh, until uh, whenever the election's called that we will be doing both roles. Um, as I say, you know, yeah, there were considerations and I, I had to think about it from a family point of view as well because, you know, it's a lot of travel, it's a lot of time away from my uh, wife and now my two boys, um, but um, it was a consideration uh, that I gave, I thought about, and, and I think I've made the right choice and I'm sure my political opponents will tell you I made the wrong choice <laughs> and will criticise me for it, but that's politics. 
Were, were you ever close to, to, to honestly standing down? Or, or, or was, was there a thought perhaps when you got offered the role to be leader of the Scottish Conservatives, maybe as, also, as an MP as well, that you couldn't fulfil that role as perhaps as you would like to? Uh, no, because I'm <clears throat> the leader of the Scottish Conservative and Unionist Party, and I think it's important um, that that uh, unionist um, uh, message that goes through everything we do, you know, I, I, there's no stronger um, description of that than someone who represents a part of Scotland in both of Scotland's parliaments. It's something uh, I think we uh, should see more of our parliaments and our governments working together. I've been very strong in that and Rishi Sunak uh, uh, as Prime Minister has been someone who believes that we can actually get a lot more done if our two governments work together. So what better example of that than someone who sits in both parliaments and can challenge, can support at times both governments to get things done for their area. Yeah, plenty more still to talk about. Um, the upcoming election, we'll talk about, we'll mention energy and, and immigration policy. Um, and I'm sure we'll spend a couple of minutes to find out which football teams you hate officiating. <laughs> It'll take you um, more than a couple of minutes. So. <laughs> uh, but first, just talk to us about, about where your political journey started. What made you want to get into a thankless job sometimes of, of politics? Yeah, uh, I mean, it wasn't my first choice. It wasn't what I thought about. Um, certainly my uh, early days at school, I said uh, I went to Avis Primary uh, and Forest Academy. And at the time, all I was interested in was farming. Um, it was my passion. My dad was a farm labourer. Uh, so at the weekends, I would go and do the milkings with him. Uh, and I loved it. Um, and I still do. Uh, I love everything about being outside, uh, being in the farm, particularly dairy farming, and even more specifically, Holstein cows. Uh, I was never into big tractors or machinery. So when I went to agricultural college, um, I remember all my mates went to uh, Australia for summer and were sending pictures. I mean, we didn't have WhatsApp for that then, but they were sending stuff back. You know, I've been on this eight for a plough or something like that and all I was interested in was a tiny wee Massey Ferguson 135 because that was my scraper tractor, uh, you know, doing the cubicles and that. So farming uh, was always my passion and uh, I was then a, a member of Lower Speyside Young Farmers, went on to be their chairman and we never ever entered the speech making competition but we had uh, two of our uh, former members Ian and Ethel Gordon that had offered their services if we ever wanted to put in a, a club for, uh, a, a team for club speech making, they would do some coaching and no one really wanted to do it so I got volunteered with a couple other people uh, we started entering competitions and ultimately got to the national finals in 1999 1999-2000 um, and we won the, the national championship and I thought gosh maybe maybe I can do this yeah. maybe I can convince a group of people uh, of an argument and I quite enjoyed standing up uh, speaking uh, on stage it doesn't come to everyone and I thought well how would I uh, use that in, in later life. I hadn't really thought about it, but I did have a, a then a growing interest in politics and current affairs. We had a, a mock election at school, which I, I won in our debating club. And then in 2007, we were looking for candidates for the local council in Murray. And we'd gone from a, a period where you had 26 individual wards to having multi-member wards. So it was that change. We had no one for Falkenberg's Lambride. I was living there. I was working on a, a dairy farm there uh, in his farm, which ultimately many years later would be where my wife and I had our wedding reception. So uh, Murray's a very small place and there's connections everywhere. Um, and I stood as a candidate for Falkenberg's Lambride. Never expected to get in. So there were, I think it was eight or ten candidates. It was the most contested award in the whole of Murray Council. Uh, at the time, the current convener, um, Eddie Coots, who was an independent, was standing. George McIntyre was standing as an independent who would go on to be the convener of Murray Council. 
and I was this new kid on the block, hadn't done anything uh, politically, was still milking cows in the morning, delivering leaflets before the afternoon milking, going back into the parlour in the afternoon. Uh, but to my surprise, uh, I was elected in, in 2007 uh, and got a bug for helping people, going to local meetings, uh, hopefully standing up for the area. And come the next council election, uh, five years later, uh, I was returned on first preferences um, and uh, met the quota. So I thought, well, people had obviously been happy with what I'd done. They'd uh, reward me with their support. Um, and I had 10 very rewarding years as, as councillor for Falkenbrough's Lambride uh, and then went on to be elected to Holyrood uh, and Westminster uh, and the rest, as they say, is history. Now, interestingly, at school, um, you were a Liberal Democrat yeah. candidate. I was hoping um, your research was that good. Different colour yeah. representing those days. So. Uh, why did you make the switch to the Tories? Or, or was that only because yeah. there was only space in the Lib Dem party at uh, school oh, that you stood for? Them? Well, no, it's funny. I, I stood for the Lib Dems in that, by, uh, in that uh, mock election. Mm. So it was 1997. Uh, and if you can think back to that time, uh, it was Blair was coming in on a landslide. So I thought, well, I don't want to say I'm, I'm the Labour candidate because that looks like you just look like you, you want to win. And of all the leaders, the one that really appealed to me, not knowing anything about their policies, I, I think I was in S3 at the time, so I hadn't really looked at what they stood for or anything. So I was just looking at the personalities and I really liked Paddy Ashdown. I thought he just had a nice way about him. He had a very, uh, you know, authoritative presence in the House of Commons. You know, I think his military background made him something that Actually, when he stood up, you listened to, to what he was saying and, and particularly how he was saying it. So for no other reason than I quite like Paddy Ashdown, I thought, well, I'll stand for the Lib Dems. Uh, and then I won this by-election. And I think my mum still got the school notice because she was the dinner lady at Forest Academy. So she got the school notice uh, that said I won by 43 votes and my closest challenger was on four votes. So it was a, a, a stomping uh, majority that I achieved. I thought, well, I must be a Lib Dem if I've been able to convince all these pupils to vote for me. Uh, so I stuck with the Lib Dems uh, and I became a member. And then I looked a bit more closely at their policies, uh, which I didn't really uh, agree with. Um, so I then uh, was kind of uh, out of uh, party politics. I didn't support any party. Uh, you know, I was at college. I was, you know, focused on farming and other things. Uh, and then I thought, well, I've still got this interest for politics. So I would look at the various different parties and, and look to the Conservatives. And they were the ones that most matched my beliefs and what I think uh, we can be doing to, to help people, to, to help themselves, to help communities, to help businesses, to help the economy. Um, and I joined the party and, and have been elected in some way, uh, at some level, since 2007 now. It obviously took a little while to get elected in, into Holyrood and Westminster, albeit in your defence you cut down a number of big majorities um, during various elections that you stood in. Um, looking back, is there anything, if VAR was in use in politics, <laughs> is there anything you would go back and change about those seven to eight years you've had in either parliament? Uh, oh yeah, lots. Um, and we could fill a whole podcast with uh, things I've said that you know, haven't come across right, um, have been misinterpreted uh, deliberately or otherwise by uh, other people. Um, so you can have a lot of regrets, but ultimately in each parliament at Holyrood and at Westminster, in the time I've been uh, a minister in government or right back to when I was a councillor, the main thing was trying to do your best for people. Uh, and there will be times that you get that wrong. But I think the kind of... Um, the less public profile of a, a representative's job is helping individual constituents. And the one thing that I'm satisfied with is that on every occasion, whether they came to me as their local councillor, as their MP or their MSP, um, I've tried my hardest to 
to help people. It's all obviously always been in that Murray or Highlands area. It's it's a part of Scotland that I think sometimes doesn't get the attention it deserves. I think we're sometimes uh, forgotten about uh, in the in the north of Scotland. So I've certainly tried my best with all these things. But no, if I if I had VAR, uh, I'd be at the screen for quite a long time, probably <laughs> looking at things that uh, I could have, should have done better. Yeah. Um, obviously, t 2017, when you were elected to Westminster, Theresa May was in charge, and it feels like a lifetime ago. Um, have you noticed a, a change in the Conservative Party over those seven years? There's kind of, nowadays, I guess you could say, an emergence of, of perhaps a further right faction led by the likes of, you know, Sarah Braverman, Lee Anderson. Has the makeup of the party, do you think, changed? Well, it certainly changed after the 2019 election with that uh, red wall um, uh, area, which had, you know, many of these seats had never been uh, represented by uh, Conservatives uh, before. Um, but parties always change, you know, no party stays the same at every election, you know, you go up or you go down, so the makeup of uh, individual parliamentary parties uh, changes. Uh, I think obviously the, the biggest thing throughout the, the time I've been uh, in politics, uh, in uh, elected parliament, uh, has been the COVID pandemic and how that changed uh, the way, you know, the country uh, was run and, and decisions that were taken during that pandemic are still filtering through now. Uh, so if we look at the, the furlough support, you know, COVID, you know, we are paying for that now and, and for years to come. And that's affected decisions um, that are currently taken and will be taken for a long time. So I think, you know, a lot has changed because of external factors rather than just uh, the makeup of parties. But yes, the, the makeup's changed. Uh, but ultimately, the, the Conservative message uh, is still, you know, we want to, you know, help business, to help individuals, uh, to support people uh, as much as possible, less government where it's possible. Uh, and of course, here uh, in Scotland, you know, as the, the main challengers to the SNP in a lot of these areas uh, is to get the obsession away from separating Scotland from the rest of the UK and back on to really vital local issues. You know, I drove here on the A96 today, a road that we were promised would be a uh, dual. You know, I came up the A9 yesterday from Parliament. I've had an issue uh, in Murray now since 2018 for uh, dealing with the uh, downgrading of the consultant-led maternity unit. I think there's uh, an awful lot of things we can and should be more focused on than, uh, you know, issues uh, within individual parties. And actually, a lot of these things are cross-party. We all want to see an improvement. It's just who will deliver that. It's a big year for, for your party on the UK level, obviously, with the election. There's been a couple of, of key, I guess, flagship policies in many ways um, debated this year. We look at the the Rwanda bill, for example, there was a number of, of some senior MPs rebelling against. I, I mentioned the likes of Sarah Braverman. I think we saw just last week or two weeks ago, Lee Anderson and Brendan Clark-Smith both standing as deputy chairman. We've had this oil and gas bill. We've seen a, a couple of people quit as MP as a result of that. Can you honestly sit here and say that as a party united going into what is a huge election year? Well, yeah, absolutely united to continue in office to uh, return a Conservative government for uh, a record fifth term because uh, I believe the, the Conservative Party and the Conservative government is more ambitious uh, for the future of the United Kingdom uh, than the Labour Party are. And I think a lot of the um, issues uh, around Labour uh, at the moment is what, what do they stand for? You know, I sat through and, and contributed to uh, the oil and gas debate 
debate that we had um, on the new legislation on Monday night, and I was particularly worried for this part of Scotland if Labour get in, because Ed Miliband um, and others uh, want to introduce a, a cliff edge to the production of North Sea oil and gas, and the impact that's going to have for over 90,000 jobs here uh, in Scotland um, and you know, hundreds of thousands across the whole of the UK. Um, but look, in every party, there will be divisions. You know, if, if you look in, and I think Keir Starmer's got the right approach uh, on the current uh, crisis uh, between Israel and Gaza, but Anna Sawar takes a different position from him in Scotland. He's perfectly entitled to do that. I've taken different positions from my party uh, and my government uh, in the past and, and will do so again in the future. Uh, if you look at the, the SNP, there, are, there were very uh, clear divisions in the SNP over the Gender Recognition Reform Bill. So uh, it's not unusual for, for parties to have differences of opinion within that. But as I say, the, the Conservative Party are absolutely united at a UK level to keep Rishi Sunak uh, in government as Prime Minister uh, to de defeat Labour, uh, but particularly here in Scotland, to, to stop the SNP. They have said, page one, line one of their manifesto is going to be about independence. I know how bad and dangerous that would be for the northeast of Scotland here, but the whole country, uh, and in a host of seats right across the country, the Scottish Conservatives are the main challengers to the SNP. So there has been some media coverage over the last few days that suggests there are some people in your party that don't think that Rishi Sunak is the right man to lead you into that election. Um, you know, <clears throat> what's your view on that? What do you say to them? And and, and certainly we, we, we know that, that some of the challenges we've got is about low economic growth over a decade and a half. I know that you are uh, a supporter of the bold, some of the bold thinking that Liz Truss brought in her short time as leader. So, you know, what, what what's your response to, to, to the leadership question and and, and, and how we get the economy moving forward again. Well, I think anyone looking to uh, replace Rishi Sunak as Prime Minister is, is completely wrong. You know, that is not a priority I hear when I knock on doorsteps. People just want uh, a Conservative Party that's going to work for them, work hard for them, rather than these internal battles, which I think, uh, you know, are distracting um, and not what we should be focused on as parliamentarians. And, you know, with all due respect to Simon Clark, he and I were both elected for the first time uh, in 2017. I think the fact that um, his, uh, you know, message it didn't garner any support from anyone else in the parliamentary party after he made his comments on Tuesday night into Wednesday, it would suggest there is uh, no appetite uh, for that type of change that he was uh, looking for. But in terms of uh, economic growth, uh, I think the Prime Minister's, you know, made uh, the right choices uh, since he came into office. If we look at Freeports, for example, and I know uh, you lost out on one here uh, in the North East, but we got one uh, up in Cromarty and Firth of Forth. That was one of his first announcements as Prime Minister, and I thought it was so positive that he came up to Scotland, he met with Nicholas Sturgeon, who was then First Minister uh, in Inverness, he went up to Cromarty to announce that. You know, we've got levelling up funds coming to communities across Scotland. Uh, you know, we've seen uh, projects across the, the North East, again, in my own Murray area. We've got seven towns in Scotland that are benefiting from £20 million over the next 10 years in a, a towns fund. That type of investment and support will hopefully help local economies, while at the same time you've got Jeremy Hunt, who in the most recent autumn statement delivered a tax cut to 2.3 million Scots, trying to ensure that people have more money in their own pockets to spend in local businesses, that, that you 
you all represent uh, as a chamber to support local economies. Uh, and that's the type of message I want to see uh, continued into the spring budget, not giving away anything that I, uh, you know, I'm, I'm asking for or, or calling for in the upcoming spring budget. But I think there's real opportunities to continue that economic growth. And then, sorry for, for the, the long answer, but, you know, I launched a paper now last summer uh, here in Scotland called Grasping the Thistle. And that was work that my, my colleagues, Liz Smith and Murdo Fraser, in our finance and economy uh, teams had done with me, looking at ways how we could improve Scotland's economy. And, you know, that's a win-win for everyone. If we can help businesses, then they're employing more people. People have more security. And then there's more tax revenues coming in to the public purse to pay for uh, public services. At the moment, we see an SNP Scottish government uh, that is hiking taxes on hardworking Scots, isn't passing on the benefits they get, for example, as I mentioned in the House of Commons this week, to hospitality, retail and tourism, the 75% uh, rates relief uh, in England. The Scottish government got that money. They could have passed that on. They could have done it last year. They chose not to. They've now, for two years, not uh, passed that on. So they're not supporting businesses. Uh, and we've got uh, ministers in government representing the Green Party who don't even believe in economic growth. So I'm really worried about the direction of travel from the SNP and the Greens. And that's why I think launching that paper showed there is an alternative. There's a Scottish Conservative series of proposals that was, I think, very well received by the business community. So I think we should be looking more uh, of what we can do with the levers here in a, a Scottish Parliament, very powerful devolved uh, administration uh, that could actually help economic growth. And, and on that then, do you, do you think there's, there's any sense that uh, because of some of the national issues and challenges that somehow the Scottish Conservatives around the agenda that you're talking around there are somehow disadvantaged with the linkages you have to the UK party? Uh, <laughs> There's always uh, issues, as I, you know, I made the example earlier with people in Scottish Labour taking a different position from UK Labour. Uh, currently, we have a situation, you know, it's less important on, on a national scale, but you've got uh, Ian Blackford as a former leader of the SNP saying it would be good to have SNP members in the House of Lords and Stephen Flynn as the current SNP leader saying absolutely you shouldn't have any SNP member in the House of Lords. So there'll always be, you know, a, a healthy debate going on with uh, respective groups and uh, areas within uh, individual parties. But I think uh, as you know, we've seen uh, there's opportunities for the Scottish Conservatives to, to put a really bold stamp on what we're doing here uh, in Scotland. So uh, next month, I'm going to be launching a health paper, which follows on from the economy paper. We've got other papers coming up on education, on uh, rural issues, uh, on justice. And I think people are looking now, you know, we've had a long time since uh, the independence referendum where our politics has really been dominated by the constitutional question uh, and nothing else. I really want it to be dominated by fresh ideas. Now, not everyone will agree with what I'm saying uh, about the future of our economy and how we can boost, boost economic uh, growth. But let's have a debate about it. Let's discuss it. Let that be the talking point of our politics. As I say at the moment, that's going to be difficult because we have two parties in government uh, here in Scotland who I don't think are doing enough to, to support businesses, to support individuals, to grow the economy, uh, and both of those parties um, are more interested in separating Scotland from the rest of the UK. I just want to kind of turn <coughs> to a couple of, of, of recent polls. Um, one on the, on the 21st of January showed that most 2019 Conservative voters now wouldn't vote for the party. Um, others have suggested really a, a John Major-style election trouncing. 
Um, do, do you still think that the figurehead of that party is the right man to lead you to an election victory? Y yes, I think... It's, there's, there's yeah. been, it's, it's poll after poll now that's suggesting a Labour landslide. Yeah, but we've also heard, and I was uh, on the uh, Sunday show just this week with Anna Sawar, who said these polls will narrow. So even people in Labour uh, are suggesting these polls will narrow. I thought you were going to be totally up to date and tell me the result of the uh, Bridge of Allen by-election last <laughs> night, which the Conservatives won with uh, an increase... Uh, in our vote share of 8.3% 8, 8 of the vote. Uh, the SNP vote was down 2.5%. So, as I've said, in seats where it's between Scottish Conservatives and the SNP, people can see we are the best vehicle uh, to beat the SNP. Uh, and I think they want to do that. We are seeing, uh, you know, I, I, I can't remember if you've mentioned polling with uh, uh, Hamza Youssef, but it's not been particularly good uh, for the SNP here. Uh, and I think people want to send the SNP a message in, in Aberdeen, Aberdeenshire, across the northeast. Uh, the way of doing that is supporting the Scottish Conservatives. Even, I guess, even more up to date than, than yesterday's by-election, there was a poll today, actually. Um, Rishi Sunak had a 42% approval rating among um, 2019 Tory voters, which, which granted is, is is a good approval rating, and um, better than than certainly a lot of his predecessors. Um, Nigel Farage had a 43% a approval rating among 2019 Conservative voters. Is the door firmly open for him to join the party? Having never met Nigel Farage, I, I would have thought he'll be disappointed with those polling numbers, actually. I think he would expect to be a bit higher. Um, I don't see any opportunity for, for Nigel Farage to, to join the Conservative Party. Um, for many reasons, but none more importantly than the fact, or, or none more significantly than the fact uh, he, at the most recent election, led a party that was trying to stop Conservatives being elected. So I think many people uh, would look at that and see uh, that he doesn't have uh, the Conservative Party's uh, values at heart um, or uh, is seeking to, to do anything uh, that would be good for the Conservative Party in terms of our electoral chances, given at the most recent election and elections, he's tried to stop Conservatives being elected. And while the polls might narrow come election time, they have changed substantially since 2019. At what point or what point did it go wrong and did this public opinion shift from what was a good majority in 2019 to on the verge of losing potentially 200 seats this year? Well, I think we've just got to wait and see what the ultimate outcome is of the general election. As I say, I'm going to be fighting in seats right across Scotland to uh, get as many Scottish Conservatives MPs re-elected uh, and new MPs elected. And I think we've got really good opportunities right across the country. As I say, you know, uh, a council by-election, I know it's a smaller scale, but that was quite a, a strong indication just last night uh, of an area where it's a straight fight between the SNP and the Scottish Conservatives and from the last local council elections, we're up 8%. They're down 2.5%. That gives me a lot of encouragement going into this election year. Let's let's move on to some, some policy matters now. Um, the energy profits levy, the windfall tax on oil and gas companies. Um, now, as we know, these companies are no longer making these windfall profits as they were when the tax was first implemented. Um, they're still being taxed enormously. Harbour Energy, less than a year ago, cut 350 jobs. Um, we've seen losses at Apache 2 and the suspension of North Sea drilling. Overall, it's more than 1,000 jobs lost in the oil and gas sector since its introduction about 20 months ago now. Has the policy been a success? 
Well, remember at the time, uh, a number of the bigger companies were saying they would accept the policy, uh, and that made it very difficult for people uh, looking to oppose it for a variety of reasons, which you've articulated and some of the challenges that have been expressed. I remember some of these companies coming out saying, you know, we could accept uh, this, and, and that made it extremely difficult to then challenge the narrative that there was out there. I think what's important now uh, is the support that we've seen from the Chancellor, from the Prime Minister, from Claire Coutinho uh, as the Secretary of State. And I think a lot of what we're looking at in the industry and the sector uh, is about the future and going forward. And the uh, bill that I was very pleased to support uh, on Monday evening and speak in support of uh, provides that uh, reassurance going forward about future licensing, about future uh, drilling. And Offshore Energies UK uh, were saying um, this week about how important it is to give that guarantee, that s stability going forward. And it's only the Conservative at UK level and the Scottish Conservatives that are doing that. I find it amazing that you have elected representatives here in the North East for the Labour Party. There's obviously no Lib Dems now um, at Scottish Parliament level um, in the North East region uh, and Green MSPs representing this area uh, that are happy to throw 90,000 Scottish jobs basically on the scrap heap. They are going to introduce a cliff edge to try and stop um, exploration for oil and gas when we know there is still a demand. So while that demand remains, we will still need to supply people with oil and gas. And the way we do it is by domestic resources, ensuring that the talented workforce here in the Northeast continue uh, in their jobs. Uh, and it is also better for the environment because we know the carbon footprint of imported oil and gas uh, is more expensive. We don't get the benefits from the, the workforce being based here uh, and it's got a higher carbon footprint. And it's also supporting, in many cases, uh, uh, administrations and, and dictatorships uh, that we shouldn't be seeking to support in any way. So I want to do everything I can and we can to stand up for this industry. And it's the Scottish Conservatives that are doing that and no other party is willing to do it. And, and so again, I, I, I get uh, cut off in Parliament for speaking too long, <laughs> so I'm using the, uh, uh, the bit more time here. The last thing I was going to say is we're all in favour of a, a just transition. But as I made the case in the House of Commons this week, the men and women that will help us get to that just transition are currently employed in the oil and gas sector here in the North East and here in Scotland. If we shut that market off, if we shut down these fields, turn off the taps now, they will go elsewhere. We will lose that talent to elsewhere in the world and they won't help us get to uh, the, the green renewable future that we want for, and, for Scotland. And there are signs of that happening yeah. already. So so absolutely, um, you know, very positive news around that approach, but it, it doesn't change the overall narrative that the companies that employ those people, the, the investors that back the companies that employ those people are looking at the North Sea with some yeah. doubt right now. Yeah. And the, you know, annual licenses are great, but if there's not investment return, mm -hmm from from yeah. that investment in that basin and we you know we're, we're hearing members saying to us that the the west african basin is less of a basket mm. case quote than the north sea right now mm. so the epl remains yep. a barrier to that yep. so on one hand we can put as many for sale signs up in the north sea as we like through licensing but no one's necessarily going to buy that property mm. if they can't make money out of it yep. so we have seen some changes to epl you know we, see, we saw a price floor yep. uh, introduced although frankly meaningless because there was very little chance that either of those measures were going to be triggered before the yeah. sunset. Um, we've now seen an inflation adjustment adju um, introduced from, from this year, but again with an expectation that 2028 remains 
the time when 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 the windfall tax will continue until so you know that's that's four or five years during which we could see the investment we need not just in energy security but also in that energy transition taking that leadership position for the uk for scotland yeah. for the northeast of scotland we will miss opportunity if investors are saying that's mm -hmm. not a place we want to put our capital. Yeah. How do we deal with yeah. that? So I, I, so you've outlined some of the changes uh, and, and there can and, and will, I'm sure, always be more opportunities to do that. And the way they do that is uh, people uh, within the party of government making these representations and you won't get better champions for the northeast industry than Andrew Bowie and David Ducat who are in uh, number 11 in the halls of government day in day out championing this area's cause and they will continue as I will uh, to, to stand up for this region uh, and this sector which is so important you've got Harriet Cross uh, who's standing um, uh, for us you've got Jill Van Teberen and, and John Wheeler who would all be outstanding voices for the area knocking down the door uh, of UK Conservative government ministers seeking to see what more we can do and we've seen some progress uh, it may be limited we want more and we'll continue to do that going forward but if you elect uh, a Labour MP an SNP MP Green MP, Liberal Democrat, they're all saying they don't see a future uh, in North Sea oil and gas. They do want to see this industry uh, declining. Uh, and I don't think we're at that stage yet. I think there is still a bright future for the industry here in the northeast of Scotland, the people employed there, and they can also help us to a bright future uh, with green energy and renewables as well. Would you like to see... Uh a slight rollback at all on, on EPL? Uh, well, I, I've spoken to the Chancellor about this and we had a, a discussion around the floor uh, as well. And I think it was Gareth Davis's first day in office uh, when he uh, announced some of the changes as well. So I have constant discussions uh, about this. I understand uh, the motivations for introducing it. I understand the problems that are still being experienced. And I think it's important that we continue to do whatever we can uh, within the, the, the tight fiscal framework that the Chancellor has to deal with and competing pressures uh, from elsewhere to see what more we can do to support the industry and it's an absolute assurance that uh, it's it has been discussed with the Chancellor uh, in the past. Again, as I say, Andrew and David are always raising these issues. I've got another meeting coming up with the Chancellor ahead of the, the spring budget, and it's on the agenda for that as well. One of the suggestions that's been made, just to finish on this point now, because I think there's a lot of other stuff that we should be tackling, is, is you know, the, the, the prospect of some kind of banded, almost income tax style approach mm -hmm. to windfall taxes, because the excess profits aren't there. Yeah. And, and, and if they are, and if, we're, if the, the, the commodity price moves back over $100, mm -hmm. that should trigger perhaps higher taxation. And mm -hmm. even some of the firms themselves, mm -hmm. as you said, yeah. reflected that. But actually, at the moment, in the 70s, you know, that, that's been a traditionally average figure over the last 20 yeah. years or so. That doesn't suggest windfalls. And actually, yep. what yeah. all it's simply doing is removing investment capital from the transition. Mm -hmm. So would that be something that you might uh, think yeah. would have merit in taking forward? Well, I think it's definitely something that's got merit to be looked at, particularly because there is some buy-in, and it's not universal, but there is some buy-in from the, the companies themselves. So I think that can and, and should be considered. I also think we've got to get away from this uh, narrative that some politicians say, well, you know, these companies are, are making huge profits. A lot of these profits are not uh, here, uh, you know, in, 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 you know, they are their global profits, not their, their UK, UK or Scottish-based profits as well. So sometimes uh, I think we have to challenge some of the narrative coming from other people who I think are actually talking down the industry. Confidence in, in the UK's energy sector is at an all-time low. That the Chamber's most recent energy transition survey revealed that. What will your party do should it be elected again, given its policies, many of its policies, are much of the reason that the 
confidence is so low. Well, I I would disagree with that. Actually, I think there's um, you know uh, low confidence uh, for a number of reasons, and I think we have to look at uh, what the Scottish government uh, are doing with the powers they have uh, over this issue, uh, and even in areas where they have uh, no power or no responsibility. Some of the language they use, as I say, from Green ministers, but also from SNP ministers, right up to uh, the First Minister. And I, I know there were serious concerns about what Hamza Youssef has said about Rosebank and the future of Rosebank, and uh, you know words have consequences and that does uh, diminish uh, some of the uh, the feeling uh, mm-hmm. within sectors. In terms of offshore renewables, I think there's really good opportunities there in terms of uh, the supply chain, of looking at uh, operations and maintenance. So if I look at Bucky Harbour uh, in my own constituency, seen a lot of investment there. Okay, it's maybe going to be 30 jobs, but they will be 30 high-skilled jobs for a long time. So it's looking at the benefits to not just our ambition to get to net zero, but how we can secure good, well-paid, highly skilled local jobs. And for me, the crucial thing there is hopefully retaining people uh, in our local area. We have a a brain drain uh, in many parts uh, of particularly the north of Scotland and some parts of the south of Scotland. If we can say to people, look, there are good, highly skilled jobs in renewables here in the northeast, come either stay here, go away and have your education, come back here, or to attract people into the area, I think that'll be very healthy. Can, can we use that opportunity to pick up on sort of talent attraction retention? Because actually, at a UK level, we, we've got pretty static population growth over decades, half a century. That's reflected also in Scotland. And effectively, with an ageing population, what that's meaning is that we actually have a net declining yeah. working age population. Mm-hmm. So some, many of our members uh, across a range of sectors are saying that the biggest growth constraint they've got is people yep. and skills. Yep. Um, clearly, uh, we've had numerous challenges to our immigration laws and status. That continues. Mm-hmm. It's going to be a big part of any election debate. But w- what's your view on, on perhaps a more nuanced, either regional or perhaps sector-based um, immigration policy, which actually enables the businesses that are trying to power our economic growth to access the people they need if they aren't necessarily here in the UK already. Yeah. Uh, so there's obviously been work done in a number of sectors. We've got uh, issues with uh, the fishing industry, which again, David Ducat uh, has spoken passionately and authoritatively on for, for many years. We've had some schemes that have been specifically looked at in terms of the uh, short-term uh, uh, workers' visas in agriculture, particularly soft fruit, if you go down the Angus coast. Uh, and some of these schemes uh, have been good and successful. Others uh, you know, could have been better, maybe need to be changed going forward. But I think we've also got to look at uh, net migration into Scotland and it's not uh, as high as other parts of the United Kingdom and you know we've got to look at the other reasons around that so immigration policy is one part of it but is Scotland uh, an attractive place for people to come now at the most recent budget the SNP introduced another tax band they are increasing tax uh, on uh, you know uh, people uh, and higher earners but these are people that we need to attract to the area they're the consultants that are going to work at ARI will they necessarily want to come up here to do the exact same job in the northeast of Scotland to pay more tax than they could elsewhere in the United Kingdom. Another issue that particularly comes up in my Highlands and Islands region, been up in Shetland, is the, the lack of housing. You know, we, there are people who want to come here, but we have a housing shortage. And we've seen in the most recent budget, the SNP cutting a huge amount of money out of the housing budget. So what are we doing to attract people in terms of uh, making it uh, financially beneficial for them to come? Well, they're, they're looking again at that because Scotland's now the highest tax part of the United Kingdom. 
do we have the housing for them when they want to come here? And then all the associated issues with that. If less people come here, there's less young people, and you highlighted the age demographic here in Scotland. You know, if less young people and families are coming here, it puts schools at risk, and rural schools in, in particular. And, you know, hospitals, you know, I've already mentioned the issues with uh, Dr Gray's and maternity issues uh, in Murray. As part of these capital cuts from the SNP, we're now hearing our MRI scanner is not going to be uh, introduced. So, you know, are, you know, there are things we can do in terms of housing, health, education that will also attract people here. And I don't believe the Scottish Government are doing that. And just as a supplementary to on that, on that um, post-study work visas mm -hmm. and additional restrictions on overseas students yeah. are causing a huge financial crisis in higher education yeah. sector across Scotland. What can we do about that? Yeah, and I've raised these with uh, several Home Secretaries because we've had a change of them as well as uh, Prime Ministers uh, and Immigration Ministers. So it is an issue uh, that I've raised uh, with them one-to-one. -one. It's also I'm a member of the Scottish Fair Select Committee and it does come up uh, a lot in our recommendations. So we have put forward uh, a number of recommendations uh, to government about this. And uh, I don't believe that Scotland needs uh, a wholly independent immigration system because I think there are uh, issues that affect the, the north of Scotland that are also similar to the south of England. I think we've got to look at uh, what's happening elsewhere but we do have to look at unique circumstances uh, here in for example uh, the northeast um, particularly in hospitality and tourism so areas of scotland that are more affected by that such as the highlands and islands south of scotland i think we should look at how current policy is implement, uh, implemented uh, but impacting uh, these parts of scotland and look at what we can do at a uk level to uh, address that it's good to hear just before we, we finish, I'm wary that, that, that time gets on and time flies in, in these episodes, certainly. Um, we touched about wh where you kind of see yourself going. Do you ever see yourself as Prime Minister? Uh, well, not if I'm standing down from the House of Commons. That's probably... <laughs> perhaps uh, in the future. You've got a long way to go yeah, in your career. Yeah, well, I'd have to get back in there again. So, uh, well, I, I certainly think the current Prime Minister uh, is doing a very good job. I want to do everything I can to, to keep him in office and have more Scottish Conservative colleagues uh, behind him. But... Look, if you'd asked me at school, uh, did I ever think I'd be uh, an MP for my home area? Uh, I'd have said absolutely not, because you couldn't do that from the milking parlour. So, you know, life changes. Uh, I'd also say, you know, um, I did it for about six months, but being a government minister uh, was a huge privilege as well. I never thought this uh, son of a farm labourer and a school dinner lady could, first of all, go on to represent his home area in Parliament and then be asked by the Prime Minister uh, to serve in government, to have his own red box, to speak at the dispatch box in the House of Commons where Winston Churchill and so many other famous politicians had delivered so many, uh, you know, incredibly important speeches. So I'm I'm personally quite proud of what I've been able to, to achieve in my time in politics, but uh, immensely grateful to the people of Murray and, and Highlands and Islands for giving me all the opportunities I've had. So if, if you were him today, when would you... <laughs> the election yeah. and, and and I think based on what I heard you saying earlier almost suggesting that Labour are pursuing a, a better than the other lot approach to their campaign what one thing would you challenge as Prime Minister today Sir Keir Starmer on if you were on a, on a on a television debate with him. Yeah. So, 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 so when and what would you say yeah, to him? Yeah, right. So, so when uh, I think um, probably November um, I think uh, there are things that the Chancellor and the Prime Minister can do in the spring budget uh, that can help 
individuals, uh, businesses, investing communities, and people need to see uh, that money, um, you know, being spent in their area and hopefully benefits uh, from that. Uh, I think we get through a summer where people can see the government working on their behalf, dealing with the, the issues that the Prime Minister uh, has articulated as being important going forward. We then have a conference season, which probably no one watches, but, uh, you know, it will be a bit more interesting. Uh, people looking at the various different parties and, and what they're outlining at conference, and then you go into an election. Uh, I've done an election in December, and uh, that was pretty dark, uh, and the weather wasn't great. So I'm, I'm hoping in November it would be a wee bit better. Uh, so my tip would be November, uh, but I'm ready to go whenever the, the Prime Minister goes to the palace uh, to dissolve Parliament. In terms of uh, the opposition and, and Sir Keir Stammer, he has to start answering some basic questions. So, for example, how is he going to pay for the £28 billion investment in, in renewables and green energy? Uh, we already know there's divisions in the shadow cabinet about that, but having sat through the debate uh, on Monday evening, I saw Ed Miliband as determined as ever uh, to, to press ahead with what he sees as, as the future uh, for green energy uh, and energy in general in the UK. And I'm very worried about what that would mean for the northeast of Scotland here. Uh, so, issues like that. But there are a whole host of policies that I don't think we could walk out of this building right now and say what does Labour stand for and they'd be able to tell you. Uh, so that's a, a big question mark over uh, Labour, Scottish Labour and UK Labour. Uh, I can tell you that the, the Conservative Party under my leadership here in Scotland, we've said first and foremost we want to grow the economy, we want to invest uh, in vital infrastructure, we've said that on the A9, on the A96. Uh, we want to improve education in our schools. I want my two boys to have as good if not better an education in Murray than I did and we want to see our waiting times coming down in our NHS because far too many people eh, are on waiting lists for far too long or having to spend a huge amount of their own personal income eh, on private healthcare because they can't get treated eh, and seen and operated on quickly enough eh, in our NHS in Scotland. So those are my priorities, those are our priorities going forward. In contrast to the SNP, who, as I said, page one, line one, it's all going to be about independence, separating Scotland from the rest of the UK. I don't think people here in Aberdeen and Aberdeenshire across the north are looking for that. Eh, and the only alternative in many of these seats is to vote Scottish Conservatives to get the focus back on the real priorities of people across the country. So why do you think a party who, as you said, aren't answering basic questions, your words, and perhaps have a lack of clarity on many things, why do you think they have so much more public support than your party? Uh, well, you'd have to, to ask the public, I suppose, uh, because if I got phoned by a pollster, I wouldn't be uh, supporting them, obviously. But I, I think there's always uh, a period, particularly before we get into the general election campaign, people say, well, X party have been in for a long time and, and they will look at what the alternative is offering. But if they look and they find nothing, then they may come back to, to the party of government, uh, currently in government, to say, well, we'll continue and, and look to see what the, the party or government are bringing forward and, and hopefully the next term and I want to see another Conservative government uh, elected but I think if they look now at what Labour would do for them they would find an empty cupboard with not much in it. Douglas um, thanks very much for joining us um, as, as we like to do we'll finish with some quick fire oh questions. Gosh, these are the um, dangerous ones. So. Yeah th th this is one that a colleague of yours was asked a number of years ago now and gave quite a famous answer um, what's the naughtiest thing you've ever oh, done? Oh, gosh. <laughs> well, uh, as a farmer, I was appalled that she was running through a wheat field, <laughs> uh, uh, I have to say. Uh, but probably, uh, yeah, there was things at college with overconsumption of alcohol. On a, on a Wednesday, uh, Agricultural College finished at one o'clock and the bar opened at half past one. So you can imagine uh, agriculture students at Auchincrove drinking from half past one. By the time we got to Club de Mar in the centre of air by about 11 o'clock, uh, there'd been a, a lot of antics going on by that stage. 
Um, what's the, the best and worst football grounds to officiate at? Uh, so you've been to most of them in the uh, country. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I could be really, uh, oh, you know, the new cam, I could pick well. that just to show off that I did Barcelona Olympiacos because <laughs> I've got a great picture of me and Messi that I have hanging up on my, <laughs> my wall. But I like uh, some of the more uh, uh, intimate grounds, uh, I would say. Um, so I was... Uh, brought up in, in Forest. So my first ever Highland League line uh, when I was made a Highland League linesman was at Mossop Park in Forest. So I always like going back to, to Mossop Park. Um, my first ever Highland League game as a referee was uh, at Wick Academy. Uh, so I went up to Wick and if you've ever been there or if, if you look at it, it's got a huge slope. Uh, and I remember running up this hill in about the 18th minute thinking that slope is getting steeper and steeper every time uh, I run up. I know this is quick fire, uh, so I won't say much more, but I, I do like Mossop Park, uh, home of Forest Mechanics. And I recently got appointed there uh, to a game. Uh, they were short of Highland League assistance. And my son came along, my, my oldest son, uh, and he couldn't understand that shouting as a four-year-old from the stand uh, about daddy, daddy, turn round. Uh, I didn't turn round and look at him when I was concentrating on the game in front of me. So I've got to tell the boys that, you know, you know I'm very, uh, uh, you know, committed to them. But for 90 minutes, if they come along to a football match, I can't quite get engaged with waving to them in the stand. <laughs> Um, silly, back onto politics now. If you could take any three opposition politicians out for dinner, Ooh. who would you choose and why? Three, well, whether they come with me or not, that's the other <laughs> question. Um, three opposition politicians. Uh, I'd pick Jamie Stone, uh, who's a Lib Dem MP for Caithness, mainly because his uh, family also own a cheese company, so he'd maybe take <laughs> some cheese along uh, for uh, after dinner. Uh, maybe in Holyrood would I take Michael Mara, uh, Labour MSP, because he's a decent footballer. Uh, so we could discuss football. Um, SMP, let's pick someone in the SMP. Gosh, who would come along to to dinner with us in the SNP. I, I always got on very well with uh, Stuart uh, M. Macdonald. There's two Stuart Macdonald MPs. Uh, they're both also Stuart M. Macdonald. I would take the one from Cumbernauld and Kilsyth because we sat in the Home Affairs Select Committee together. And Stuart, he will hate me for saying this, uh, you know, it's unusual for an SNP MP in that he tried to be constructive uh, on committee. And I always, you know, regarded him very highly for that. So I'd take Stuart also because he plays football. And the last match I refereed between the MPs and the MSPs, he went down uh, injured and I thought he was play acting and didn't give him anything. It turned out he'd torn his cruciate ligaments. So <laughs> I kind of have to make up for that as well. So, so on, 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 that, on that monitoring, what's happening on the field of play, has VAR been good or bad for football? Oh, I, well, that last bit you, you threw me because I, I very much like and support VAR, particularly for referees. So if you'd ask for referees, uh, I think it is absolutely um, you know beneficial for us. Um, it ensures that we are not the only people at a stadium who know if we've got a decision right or wrong. Uh, and I think that's been one of the, the biggest things. You know, Why would we be doing games where everyone can see in their phone that I got an offside wrong and we can't correct that at the time? But I understand some of the frustrations about how long it takes, some of the subjective decisions and you know we are constantly training last Sunday I was with other category one and specialist assistant referees looking at how we can improve our performance on the field uh, and in the bar room and it'll take time but I think overall if it can reduce the number of mistakes that are made we're all humans we've all made mistakes we will make mistakes uh, I think it's a useful tool to have but I understand the frustration of some fans <laughs> which which politician is the hardest to debate against um 
I mean, for all our many differences, and and we had no kind of personal rapport uh, or anything, you know, you can't take away that Nicola Sturgeon uh, was a, a very accomplished uh, debater uh, and first minister, and I went up against her several times at first minister's questions um, and in debates uh, ahead of the the twenty one election, and she 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 was and still is uh, a very accomplished uh, debater. I disagree uh, with her uh, fundamentally over many issues, none more so than the future of Scotland's place in the United Kingdom, but I'm not going to be churlish and say she wasn't a, a very good debater. Last last couple of questions. Now, which opposition politician do you admire the most? <sighs> which opposition admire most? Um, God, this is... I could have prepped for this a bit better <laughs> than than trying to, to think uh, off the hoof. Um, uh... <laughs> I mean, I admire what Fergus Ewing has done uh, since he left office. I think many of the campaigns that he's now uh, sought to promote, he could have done from within government. But I think as someone who is a long-standing member of the SNP, again, someone who supports independence, which I would never back, but is someone who's standing up for his constituents to get the E9 and the E96 shield, I think he has uh, risen in many people's uh, eyes in terms of challenging within his own party and, and sadly being punished for, for speaking out. I think it was totally wrong that he was uh, expelled for a period from the SNP for simply doing what many of us thought was the right thing to say he had no confidence in Lorna Slater after her shambolic attempts at um, introducing a deposit return scheme. And just finally, if you were Prime Minister for a day without <laughs> any repercussions, <laughs> what would you do? Uh, I would like to see uh, a focus on uh, improving the education uh, of young people across Scotland. I think it's the... Uh, you know, it's something Scotland once was famed for uh, around the world, and I think our education has dropped to levels that I don't think our teachers uh, are happy with. I think they feel constrained, and I think if we can prioritise uh, a good education, what I was blessed to have, as I say, uh, in Murray many, many years ago, then that helps not just the young people, uh, but the future uh, opportunities for our country going forward. Douglas, thanks ever so much for joining us on episode two of Chamber Talk. Thanks also to the Chief Executive of Aberdeen and Grampian Chamber of Commerce, Russell Borthwick. I've been your host, Finlay Jack, and I'll see you next time. Mm -hmm.